the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into our third hour. It's a delight to welcome back someone we haven't heard from in a while, Tevi Troy. My bad. Tevi Troy is a cultural and presidential historian here and the author of many books, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, has a uh, new book review out on a new book on um, Harry Truman, President Harry Truman and the presidency of Harry Truman. And it gets into some interesting other conversations I wanted to have with Tevi about post-presidential, um, post-presidential and really post-public life uh, encomiums and treatments of uh, these characters once they are no longer in office. Tevi, welcome back to the show. How are you, buddy? Jeff, it's great to be back with you and your terrific audience. Oh, thanks, well, Jeff. thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, one of the things you do when you write book reviews, I mean, you do review the book and you do it really well, I think better than anyone. You've been at this a while. But you also kind of teach about additional history that, that you know goes beyond the book a little bit, which always makes you um, more interesting of a read, I have to tell you. Just, just a little compliment about your style. I appreciate it very much is all I'm trying to say. And I learned some stuff even in this book review I didn't know about uh, the presidency of Harry S. Truman. This is a new book, um, The Trials of Harry S. Truman, The Extraordinary Presidency of an Ordinary Man by Jeffrey Frank. Uh, you're a presidential historian. You have written about Harry Truman yourself in your own books. Uh, tell us about this one, and then I want to get into some other uh, some other ancillary issues that come from it. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for the kind words. I, I intentionally try to bring out some more interesting stuff into book reviews because I frankly don't want to be bored either writing it or <laughs> right. have the fear that my readers are bored reading it. Yeah. So, right. Uh, you know, just a dry recitation of the book is a book report I could have done in third grade, but I'm, I'm trying to do something a little different with my reviews. And in this, I really try and get to the larger historical questions about where Harry Truman fits in. The book itself is a really good read because so much happened yeah. in that Truman administration. Yeah. Yeah. And he, the, the subtitle is really correct because he was an ordinary man and he was not prepared for the presidency. He was not briefed on anything. Roosevelt barely spoke to him during the administration. Roosevelt was obviously the president and who uh, brought him in as the vice president for the fourth term. So Harry Truman is completely new to the administration. Roosevelt's been president for 12 years. He's got the entire federal government wired. He knows everything. He feels like he doesn't have to share anything with this novice vice president from Missouri. And then all of a sudden, Harry is playing poker, meaning he's playing poker in the middle of the day and drinking with his buddies on Capitol Hill, which tells you how busy he was. And he gets a call from the press secretary telling him to get to the White House as quickly and as quietly as you can. And that's how he found out he was the next president of the United States. And then immediately after that, He's told by the Secretary of Defense, oh, yeah, we have this very powerful weapon that's super secret. It's called an atomic bomb. Uh, yeah, right, right, right. And then he had to make the decision, obviously, uh, on that. Um, yeah, exactly right. Uh, Harry Truman, something people won't know or remember, I should say, people won't remember. He left office with an unusually low popularity rating. I had forgotten yeah, he, how low it was. Right, he was 
quite unpopular as president. He was at only 31% approval. But also, he lost the midterm elections in 1946, right. so about two years into his presidency, very badly. So much so that people in his own party were suggesting this complex maneuver where he would step down and appoint a Democratic Secretary of State and then let the Secretary of State become the president. I mean, it was a, it was a convoluted maneuver. Uh, Truman had no interest in it, but the, the fact of the matter is he was seen as very unpopular and ineffectual almost throughout his presidency, and his win in 1948 was actually quite a surprise. And We all remember the headline, Dewey defeats Truman, yep. because everyone assumed Truman was going to lose, yep. and Truman really just went on a historic and, and very impressive campaign at the end and really kind of dragged his campaign over the finish line in the historian. i got to ask, as a historian yourself, someone who's written about Truman yourself, uh, did you learn anything in the book, anything interesting, I should say? Oh, sure. I learned tons of, of interesting things, including that line I start the review with where he's telling his cabinet in this closed-door meeting at the end of the presidency. He said that uh, his, his approval rating is, gonna, is very low now, but it's going to keep going up every year going forward. Yeah. So that kind of very positive attitude was, was interesting. Uh, just how eventful the presidency was, I mean, not just the, um, the nuclear bomb, the end of World War II, the integration of the armed forces, the creation of the state of Israel, the Korean War. I mean, it was a jam-packed administration, also the Berlin airlift. So, I mean, he was, he was very busy in a whole bunch of things. And um, I think there's, some, there's not only stuff that was new to me, but I think stuff new to the historical record that Jeffrey Frank brings out based on the archives. I haven't read um, on Truman in a long time. I read McCullough's book, but that, that came out, gosh, a long time ago, too, didn't it? Was that, is, is that book 30 yeah, years I mean, old? Yeah, 30 already? more years of yeah. historiography. Yeah, yeah right. Know. It's about 30 years old. You had another quote in there, uh, Tevi, that I didn't know about. And it has to do with uh, his meeting with uh, Stalin and Churchill at Potsdam in 1945. And it's this quote you brought out. One of Truman's advisors passed him a note during the talks saying, quote, I think Stalin's feelings are hurt. Do be kind to him. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I, I looked that one up a bit. That one got me for a while because, as you know, I've been kind of re-steeping myself in the, in the study of Whitaker Chambers and McCarthyism and the Soviet and communist menace of the 40s and 50s. I've probably bored you to tears on, on what I've been talking to you about on our off-air conversations with that. But I looked up the guy who wrote this. this. His name was Joseph Edward Davies. I don't know if you'd encountered him before. This was a man um, who was the ambassador to the Soviet Union prior to working for Truman under Roosevelt, who had nothing but lovely things to say about Joseph Stalin. One of the things he cabled uh, uh, while he was ambassador is, quote, communism holds no serious threat to the United States. Friendly relations in the future may be of great general value. And, of course, he was um, he was talking about Stalin's vision as being consonant with the Christian faith and protecting the Christian world of free men throughout. And it dawned on me as I'm looking at this, I just, you know, people forget how much of this sentiment, A, existed, but B, you know, you think about McCarthy and all his charges, how much of this stuff really did rise to pretty darned high levels in American government? Am I overstating it? No, I don't think so. And I'm glad you looked that up, Seth, because I've got to say I generally like the Frank book, but I had a criticism in that he didn't give enough yeah. context on yeah. that quote. Yeah. And I was wondering, what's the story? Is it because... 
uh, Truman was kind of a bumbling fool and, and alienated Stalin because he wasn't used to di- diplomacy? Or was it because Davies was Soviet sympathizer? Yeah. Or maybe, it, <laughs> you know, some people said there were a lot of communist agents, and there really were. I mean, yeah. McCarthy aside, there actually were some communist yeah. agents in the Roosevelt and Truman administration. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I really wanted to know more about what was going on. With, with that quote, but that quote really did jump out. And grab I, I want people to know it too. I want people to know. I, have you ever been a guest, a first-time guest on the Hugh Hewitt show? If you ever had the opportunity to answer his first question, he asked first-time guests, "Was Alger Hiss guilty or not?" Right. right. I don't right. think people have even you read the Looming Tower. Yeah, is that the second one? Have you read the Looming Tower? They're pretty good questions. Although he's now switched it to um, uh, Josh Rogan's book, Chaos Under Heaven. About oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> All right. Good for good for him. Uh, but the Alger Hiss question, I mean, I don't think most people under 50 remember that story anymore, the Whitaker Chambers story anymore. But it got to something pretty important, right, which was Alger Hiss was very high, obviously, in the in the administration as well. And these guys were so I mean, I don't know how you get around the notion that people like him or in this case, uh, Joe Davies, were communist agents advising presidents of the United States. Communist agents. I think that's a fair oh. thing to say. Yeah. And let's look at the reason why Harry Truman was vice president to begin with. Yeah. Was Henry Wallace, who was Roosevelt's second vice yeah. president, the one that Truman replaced, yeah. was a communist sympathizer. I don't think he was actually a communist agent. He was a sympathizer and he had communist agents on his staff yeah. and they thought he was just too dangerous to keep as the um, as the vice president. So in, in the Truman administration, or actually in the, the fourth Roosevelt administration, and then eventually into Truman, he becomes the Commerce Secretary. Right. So they keep him in the government, right. even though he's a communist sympathizer. And then, as I, I lay out in the review, he gets, tries to get involved in foreign policy, yeah. alienating the Secretary of State, and Truman is forced to let him go. And there's that quote, quote I, there and there, with Truman says that uh, Wallace was so nice about it, he almost rethought uh, firing him. But then, not the end of the story exactly quite yet, because then Henry Wallace runs for president as a socialist. Right. Kind of and an interesting thing. Well, yeah, um, no, no. Yeah, he was our vice president. He was yeah. a dangerous person to have in the United States. Government. And the funny thing is, we think, i got to take a break. Can you stay a bit? i got to run. Of course. One of the things that's interesting about this is some of the memory, I mean, I think justifiable memory of Truman is how anti-communist at least his verbiage was. Uh, let's pick up on some of this and other people and uh, politicians, not necessarily with a D behind their name, who the media treats and gives better marks to after their tenure than during. I'm Seth Liebson. He's historian Tevi Troy. You can go to his website to learn more about him, tevitroy.org. Follow him on Twitter. Get his book, Fight House. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, author of several books, uh, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, presidential historian. We're talking about a book uh, he just reviewed about Harry Truman's presidency, but stay with me because I'm going to get to some more contemporary stuff that emanates from it or that got me to thinking about some of the issues uh, Tevi raises. Tevi, right before the break, you know, despite having uh, communist sympathizers, to put it no higher, in his administration, Truman's, he was known and deservedly so as um, as the – well, let me put it this way, the kind of Democrat we wish we had now, especially when it comes to ideologies like communism, right? He was pretty tough on communism, wasn't he? We would uh, kill for a Democrat like that. Yeah, so, okay, yeah. all right. So, I mean, he, he, was, he was tough on, on communism, and uh, you said he was tough on communism and verbiage. Yeah. He was, but yeah. also in, in deed. And look, you know, he, I mean, he pursued uh, 
Korean War, which I, I think there were some problems in the way they, they pursued that. Uh, not the idea of pushing back against communism, right. but first not including Korea in the defensive perimeter, which gave Stalin the confidence to allow North Korea to proceed with the invasion, and then later not really reigning in MacArthur sufficiently, and MacArthur got too close to the Chinese border, and then that precipitated a Chinese counterattack, which killed thousands of Americans. And then in the end, they just got they got no further than that spot anyway. So the, the war ended in a stalemate, and they could have ended in that same stalemate with much less loss of life. He also was pretty, if memory serves, Tevi, he was a pretty tough partisan, too. I mean, you know, I... Um some of his rhetoric against Republicans was was perhaps uh, new in the sense that he was willing to compare Republicans to foreign ideologies too. He was a pretty tough partisan. Oh yeah, he hated Republicans. Yeah, he really. He I mean, he would use that the fascist. Said, he would use the fascist word about Republicans. Yeah, that said, he worked very closely with Arthur Vandenberg, right. who was the uh, Republican head of the Foreign Relations Committee, right. and he um, reached out to him immediately after losing that 1946 election. And they formed a really important partnership in terms of uh, jointly pursuing anti-communist initiatives. This issue, uh, thank you for that, this issue of him going from 31 percent approval when he leaves office to, you know, rated as among the better presidents in the United States by historians now. I'm trying to think if there's any presidency. It's an unfair question to ask you on the fly, but just thinking out loud with me. I'm wondering if any presidency saw their approval numbers ever go down after they left office. I'm betting not. I'm betting not. I don't know if you would Oh, I think there's an interesting case study right now in terms of Woodrow Wilson. Okay, yeah. Because for yeah. 70 years, Woodrow Wilson was seen as a great progressive hero. Yeah. And, now, and I think he really was protected by the fact that there was a D after his name, that historians didn't go after him as, as roughly as I think he deserved. Um, but now there's a re-examination of Woodrow Wilson that recognizes that he resegregated the federal government, yep. that he tried to keep women from voting, yep. that he um, just pushed aside civil liberties. Vicious and, racism, uh, vicious racism. Yeah, he, was, he was himself a racist. He screened the racist movie uh, in the White House. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of problems with the Woodrow Wilson administration that I think are now coming to the fore. So I think he is less regarded now than he was. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a good example. And by the way, still, still, however, lauded, I was going to say loved, that's the wrong word, but still lauded by the progressives in this. I mean, he was basically the, 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 I don't know, de facto leader of the progressive intellectual movement in America, at least when it came to political uh, positioning, wasn't he? I mean, he was he, he he you can mark Woodrow Wilson's rise to the rise of the progressive movement. and He would have embraced that notion, I think. Yeah, I, I still don't think we've come to the full reckoning of all the problems with the Woodrow Wilson right. administration. But uh, but I think he's someone who's taken a hit. In recent. You know, an interesting person who's taken a slightly positive uh, bump would, would be uh, Richard Nixon. Yeah. Um, obviously, Watergate huge problem, uh, but you often hear well uh, from, from liberals that well, I liked his, his domestic policy, uh, which you know included a lot of liberal interventions like um, the Philadelphia Plan and, and the, uh, the creation, which is the affirmative action plan, and the, uh, the creation of the um, the EPA justices uh, who uh, gave uh, us Roe versus Wade. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so Nixon is kind of liked domestically by liberals, but also from a foreign policy. Yeah. And he and uh, Kissinger maneuvered to keep the Soviets out of the Middle East, which was a successful maneuver that worked for almost 40 years mm-hmm. until Barack Obama unwisely, I think, let them back in um, in, in Syria. So uh, I think there was something to say about that. And he was also a 
foreign policy guru that was regularly uh, looked to by presidents like Bill Clinton yep. uh, got his advice on foreign policy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, th- those are interesting upticks. And it might be interesting. I mean, time will tell. I, I'm going to guess by, well, I have this phrase from Chesterton that you can't be a saint through other people's sins. But I do have this sense that uh, by negative implication, Trump's numbers, they, they may rise over if this administration keeps on as it is. Trump may be looked about that in some years he may be looked back at as a more popular uh, or at least a higher rated president than uh, given credit for in, in, before our very eyes. Maybe but. I, I can say I don't know about that just because the hysteria of the liberal journalist. It lasts so long. So intense. Yeah. I, I don't know about that. But I will say that George W. Bush has seen an increase in his reputation in the last 10 years. Part of it is, uh, this is something you and I were talking offline, is that liberals can't stand Republican presidents when they're in office, but afterwards, sometimes they start to give them glowing assessments. Um, you know, after they're dead or irrelevant, suddenly uh, the Republican president... That's, yeah. You definitely saw that with George W. Bush. You saw that with his father, George H. W. Bush, who's lauded by liberals today, uh, but at the time when it was horrifically... Uh, derided. And, and look at Mitt Romney. I mean, yeah. you know, they were calling him uh, this racist, um, going to put you all back in chains in the 2012 campaign. And, and now liberals seem to like him, although he's actively <laughs> He's so given them a lot of reason. Like <laughs> he's given right, them right, a... He's given some more, more reasons other than, you know, no longer being a presidential candidate. Yeah, but, I was uh, going to say he... Also, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, but, but the fact of the matter is that you have these Republican presidents who are just vilified by the left when they are in office. And then suddenly, when they're no longer relevant on the political scene, and there's no danger of them being president anymore, then suddenly they're estimation. And not just presidents, uh, would-be presidents, candidates, uh, you know, conservative leaders generally. Uh, McCain, uh, when he passed, he didn't make it the presidency, but I went back and looked up. I mean, he was called a racist. He was called a bigot. Bob Dole was called a racist. Bob Dole was called a bigot. Uh, so, too, obviously, we know much about uh, how much Goldwater had to take from incoming but all these guys, when they passed on, you would think they were the most beloved people in the country with 90 percent approval ratings that were two-term presidents. You would think once they, as you put it, are no longer a threat or no longer in power or no longer um, you know, known for what it is they were trying to do, which was appeal to the public and, implate and, uh, and uh, implement their public policy. I got I to gotta take a quick, uh, uh, another quick break. Uh, can you stay with us and maybe respond a little bit more on that when we come back? Sure. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Tevi Troy, and as we go to break, let me put in a word for our great sponsor, Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. They're fruits and veggies. I take it every single day, 100% natural, using vine-ripened produce, third-party tested for everything from bacteria and pesticides to heavy metals, gluten-free, non-GMO, no added vitamins or other chemicals, no added anything, no added sugars, no added anything. All it is is 100% whole food, a blend of 16 whole fruits, and 15 whole vegetables. Been taking it for three years. It's kept my immunity boosted, my energy high, and I think, as I say, helps me um, with my uh, my running as well, certainly on the repair part. If you're interested in balance of nature, fruits and veggies, and seeing what it can do for you, you won't have to wait weeks to notice the difference. You'll see it right away. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Historian and author Tevi Troy is our guest. It would be a conceit uh, not to ask him about any other books that uh, he wants to uh, recommend to us because uh, we try and be as literate here as we possibly can. Tevi, any other books you've read recently you want to share with the audience? You're usually reading interesting, fun stuff. 
Yeah, I've read a couple of interesting ones. I just finished a book called Take the Gun, Leave the Cannoli by Mark Steele. Oh, I bet and I know what that's about. Yeah, it's a history, you're correct, it's a history of the making of The Godfather, ah. which was uh, not only a terrific movie, and uh, I believe recently voted one of the greatest movies of all time, or the greatest movie of all time, but it also was a famously fractious production where there was infighting between the director and his director of photography, between the director of the studio, among the actors, and it was just a constant uh, turmoil on the set. But there was some thought that all that turmoil led to the magic that appeared. You know, I, I, I should look into this, unless you already have. No reason you necessarily would have, though. Um, but I remember talking about that movie with a friend of mine um, not terribly long ago. Must have been on TV. It's often on. It's often on television. And I was talking to a friend of mine whose uh, parents were from Italy, and um, he was saying, "You know, a lot we Italian Americans did not like that series. <laughs> we did not like those Godfather movies." I can appreciate certain respects why that would be the case. Um, but his yeah. point was it led to uh, a certain amount. You know, we had just kind of gotten over. The, the big part of the anti-Catholic Catholic movement in America. Well, not just, but we were coming out of it, obviously. And um, and uh, the discrimination against uh, immigrants, Italian-Americans, uh, who did fight a lot of discrimination in this country. I, I thought that was interesting. I don't know if that might have been covered in the book. Yeah, the book does get into that. Oh, and okay. there were some groups, like uh, there was a kind of an anti-defamation, anti-Italian anti-defamation. Colombo or something like that, maybe. Like Joe Colombo yeah. uh, was, was part of it. And they actually secured a, an agreement from the filmmakers not to have the word mafia or La Cosa Nostra in the movie. Oh, is that right? And so those, movies, those words do not appear. No kidding. But they also said, even though there was a lot of tension and a lot of resistance to the movie being filmed, once the movie came out, they, they claimed that it was actually beloved in the Italian community. Because in some ways, it is a loving movie about yes. family. Yes, yes. And, and it shows a lot of the great Italian In traditions. some ways, it is. In right. some ways, it um, is. And obviously, you would expect a mature enough audience to know that, you know, not, not that we don't engage in, in, in group identification here and blame members of a group for, you know, the bad, bad behavior of other members of that group. But um, also, too, I mean, it was directed by Francis Ford. Coppola, right? I mean, this is a man who would obviously be sensitive to, uh, one would hope. Well, I mean, he was a nobody at the time. He had uh, only directed three small movies at the time. He won an Academy Award for writing Patton, but people didn't know that at the time because he won the award during the filming of the movie The Godfather. And he was actually picked, according to the book, in part because he was Italian and in part because many of the famous directors at the time refused the assignment because the book was so lurid, there was a lot of sex and violence in it. Oh, so really? They were desperate to find a director. They really wanted an Italian director, and Coppola was the only one of any prominence whatsoever. Uh, but even though Coppola ended up putting together a great movie, he fought Hammer and Tongs with the um, with um, Robert Evans, who was the, uh, the studio head uh, at, at Paramount, and they were constantly... Each other's Did the book get into it all? Did the book you read uh, take the uh, gun, leave the cannoli? Uh, sorry, take the cannoli, leave the gun. Did um, did uh, did the book get out, uh, at all? Get into the whole issue of whether that that Sinatra story that's kind of the horse head in the in the bed thing related to Sinatra? Did it leave that alone? Oh, it goes in depth into the Sinatra. I'm buying the fa- book. the fact that the the character Johnny Fontaine is based on Sinatra. And uh, Sinatra did have that, that great role that um, 
he really was, which I believe was the role of the uh, from here to eternity Italian prisoner in from here to eternity. Yeah, um, but it doesn't. It, the the fact that the whole horse's head was placed in a studio um, head bed is, is made up. Yeah, yeah, that was that was not real. But but the character was clearly based on Sinatra. Sinatra knew it and was angry and hated sure. Mario Puzo as a result. Although they, they later uh, became okay with each other. But, um, but Sinatra was very angry at the portrayal. And then another interesting thing is that there was more of that character in the book than in the movie. Ah, interesting. And the actor who played the Sinatra-type character was somewhat new to acting, and he later complained that to, to uh, Coppola, you, you cut uh, so much my role. <laughs> Coppola, <laughs> you weren't a very good actor. You told me you read a book on conservatism. I'd love to hear about that when we come back. Can we do that real quick when we come back? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Tevi Troya is our guest. He is the author of several books himself, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. You can follow him and everything he's up to at his website, tevitroy.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, brought to you in part by the good folks at Midas Gold Group. Gold has been used as money for nearly 3,000 years, and it remains a common-sense investment that's simple and straightforward. You know why you want gold. What you don't want are pushy-commissioned salespeople. All you need really is a reputable dealer with advice based on experience, complete range of bullion and coins, so you get what you want at the best value. Enter Midas Gold Group. They're veteran-owned, proud supporters of America First and this show right here on 960. They're fighting for your right to financial privacy and freedom that gold offers. I have gold and silver from Midas Gold Group. I want you to trust the dealer that I and Seb Gorka and thousands of our listeners know and trust. Visit them in person at 625 West Deer Valley Road in Phoenix or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com. They're good people. I know them. Really good people. Check them out. Tevi Troy is our guest, presidential historian, author himself, many books, uh, most recently Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Tevi, you were telling me offline about a book on conservatism you just read. That's always going to uh, uh, zing the strings of my heart. Tell me about this book. Yeah, there's a book that might zing the strings of your audience, too. It's called The Right by Matt Continetti, a uh-huh. guy who we both know. Yeah. And he's been working on this book for a long time. And he really gives the history of the conservative movement over the last century. For a long time, you and I have referred to the George Nash book as the history of conservatism. Yep. It's a very good book, but it's a little dated. Uh-huh. And Continetti's book brings it up to the, the current day and uh, is very well written, and it's an engaging read. And what really struck me about the book has, is how it all happened before. The infighting, the worries about populism, the quest to purge certain elements of the movement, the, uh, uh, the denigration by the liberal media, it's all, everything that's old in the book, 50 years old, 70 years old, it's all so familiar because we still see it today. And what's the name of this book? It's called The Right. The Right. I know, yeah, I know Matt, and uh, probably not as well as you, although I know him a bit, and uh, he's very gifted and uh, extremely smart. Uh, I remember when I first met him, we were talking, he was he was a much younger man as I was, I suppose, uh, he was uh, he 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 was studying things in college that uh, you know must have been his own 
his own trajectory, his own his own self autodidactic uh, mission to learn because it was stuff in college that I know they weren't assigning. He was reading kind of like you and I probably did in a certain respect, reading old issues of commentary and old issues of National Review while he was in college. You don't see a lot of that. That's just the kind of stuff you and I did back in the day. But uh, I don't think you see any of it, unfortunately. Huh? <laughs> I don't think you see any of it, unfortunately. But Matt was one of those kids uh, who's, you know, a bit, quite a bit younger than us, but he was doing it, and uh, that's just a rare thing. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, I assume this takes us through, I don't think the Nash book, I, when was the Nash book published? I was going to say the, it, the Nash book didn't get us to the Reagan Revolution, I don't think. Yeah, I thought it goes through the 70s. Yeah, I think it ends in the 70s, too. A lot's uh, happened since then. Yeah, a lot has, and I assume Continenti gets into some of this with the Reagan administration as well. It must, must, well I mean, he goes through the Trump administration. All the way through the Trump administration. And it must have it must have been in your uh, wheelhouse on parts of it. I mean, you've written bo- – uh, you wrote a big book, I mean, maybe the landmark book on intellectuals in the White House – it must have gone into that in the Reagan administration, too, right? I mean, that that would have been an interesting part. If it does, I don't know. Oh, yeah, so. and also um, in the Ford and in the, the Nixon administration. Yeah. So there's all kinds of great stuff in there. And, and all the different intellectuals who had various roles in the administrations and wanted to have roles in the administrations. And, Anything uh, you, were, you, you learned aside from the fact that, you know, nothing new under the sun as far as the infighting goes? Anything else interesting that stood out that you took with you from that book, aside from just getting good history about our movement? There was just one story that jumped out at me. I don't know uh, if your listeners will be familiar with both these people, but uh, Michael Novak, who was a Catholic theologian uh, and ex-Marxist who's moved to the right because he likes Marcus, Marcus, he wrote a book, and uh, Father John Newhouse, also ex-Marxist, also Catholic theologian, also moved to the right because he likes Marcus, wrote a negative review of it. And these two people had so much in common, didn't talk for a decade, after that review was published. Is that right? Yeah. That, they probably had more in common than any other two other people in the world. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, so Father Newhouse was the editor of First Things for many, many years, wasn't he? Correct. I, I, Yeah, he was the editor of First Things, probably died about 20 or so years ago. Michael Novak, I knew a little bit better, probably died about five or so years ago, eight years ago maybe. Yeah. Uh, really good friends with Jack Kemp. Uh, you can see why, given his his work on uh, Catholicism. I quote I Michael Novak a lot, though. Uh, Michael Novak was a hell of a producer. I think. I think he produced a lot. You know, he wrote, wrote a lot of books, a lot of important books, and uh, but uh, you know, some people are very thin-skinned when it comes to their own work, and uh, they, they didn't talk for a long time. So I thought that was really interesting. The other thing that really jumped out at me is I didn't think I could read a book that made me hold Irving Crystal in higher esteem than I already do. Yeah. And uh, this book really just showed how important Irving Crystal was in developing the movement and giving it intellectual credibility and bringing a, an academic sense of uh, sociology and data study into the movement in helping key people get jobs or fellowships or get their papers published at key moments. I mean, he is, he's really the hero of the book in the way I I'm glad you said that because I have been rediscovering Irving again. Let's emphasize Irving Crystal's works that I don't think I appreciated enough back uh, back in the day. Um, and uh, Irving, interestingly enough, 
focused almost entirely, almost entirely his work on domestic and cultural policy, not foreign policy. I don't even know if he wrote on foreign policy ever, ever. Uh, but I, I quote him often. I don't think I appreciated him quite enough. But, you know, there are a lot of his babies around that we have to thank uh, Irving for. That point you just made, uh, careers he made, I think Heather MacDonald would probably say he helped her. If I'm not mistaken, he helped give her a career. I know Bill Bennett would say it, uh, yes, and there Charles are others. Murray. Huh? Charles Murray? Charles Murray. He discovered Charles Murray in uh, his book about welfare reform uh, and helped him. Get losing that Ground. Book was that Losing Ground? Yeah, and, and then that book, Losing Ground, was incredibly influential in getting the welfare reform bill passed in the 1990s. Aristotle says power is the ability to be and make things be. Probably a pretty good epitaph for Irving Crystal's career, huh? Absolutely. And, and it's interesting that you say you've rediscovered yeah. Irving Crystal. It's yeah. not like either you or I have ever undiscovered Irving right. Crystal. He's always been someone we greatly admire. Right. But I think he's the kind of guy who even people who know his work as well as we do, the more you delve into him, the more you appreciate him. Oh, yeah. Rereading him is tremendously enlightening. Well, Tevi, thank you. i got to let you go. Thank you for spending some time with us. Really appreciate it, as always. Thanks so much, Phil. God bless you, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Tevi Troy, author of Fight House and several other books. We'll be right back. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us. A closing thought, uh, just speaking about Irving Kristol. Yeah, here's what I'm talking about. Here's an old essay of his called When um, Virtue Loses All Its Loveliness. Let me give you the opening, and you'll see why I think he's worth rereading again. When we lack the will to see things as they really are, there is nothing quite so mystifying as the obvious. This is the case, I think, with the new upsurge of radicalism that is now shaking much of Western society to its foundations. We have constructed the most ingenious sociological and psychological theories, as well as a few disingenuously naive ones, to explain this phenomenon. But there is, in truth, no mystery here. Our youthful rebels are anything but inarticulate, and though they utter a great deal of nonsense, the import of what they are saying is clear enough, and what they are saying is they dislike, to put it mildly, the individualist, capitalist civilization that stands ready to receive them as citizens. They are rejecting this offer of citizenship and are declaring the desire to see some other kind of civilization replace it. He goes on then to talk about what that is. It's Marxism, and he goes on to talk about how wrong and why they were so wrong, the youth then. This must have been published about 1970, and here we are again. You know, nothing new under the sun at all. Uh, I want to thank uh, Chris Llewellyn again for serving as the uh, producer pro tempore. Thank you, Chris. Bill will be back tomorrow, as we will be back tomorrow in the interim. Hope you all have a good evening. God bless you all. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.